My name is Dr. Chris Jenkins, and I am the CEO of the Oriane Society and the host of the Snake Talk Podcast, the podcast where you learn about nature's most feared, maligned, and persecuted animals. I invite you to listen to this conversation, and maybe you'll find that what you perceive as fear is actually rooted in a deep fascination. Welcome to the Snake Talk Podcast. We have a good one for you guys today. I am sitting here talking with uh, Laura Smith, who I've now known for, I don't know, I guess it would be probably about 13 plus years. Uh, you know, I first met Laura when we were actually kicking off the, the Oriane Society, and we ended up holding kind of the first organizational stakeholder meeting actually at the facilities where Laura works. Um, and we're going to get into that and much, much more about a whole variety of uh, snake projects that she's been working on over the years. Welcome to the podcast, Laura. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks, Chris. And so I mentioned that, that obviously we work together going all the way back to the beginning of Orianne. Um, but why, why don't you kind of let just tell everybody, uh, you know, who you are, where you're sitting today, uh, you know, what it is you do for a living. Sure. Um, so um, I work at a facility called the Jones Center at Itchaway, which is um, a private research center that was established back in the early 1990s on a, a quail hunting plantation in Southwest Georgia, kind of in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's a lot of quail hunting plantations in this region, but this particular place, which we, we uh, is known um, as Itchaway, that's the name of the property where we're located, uh, was originally owned by Robert W. Woodruff, the, um, a past CEO of the Coca-Cola Corporation. And gosh, I, I've been here for the last 20 years, and um, I'm a, a research scientist or scientist, um, basically a, a full-time uh, researcher, although about 30% of my time is on education and outreach. Great. And, and your role there is focused on reptiles and amphibians. Is that right? Or do you work more broadly than that? That's right. Um, I'm, I'm actually, um, my degree's in wildlife ecology and conservation, but um, I'm the herpetologist on our staff, which kind of makes me laugh because we have a hydrologist, an eco-hydrologist, an aquatic ecologist, and I'm the herpetologist. So it's kind of a, a unique title. We have another wildlife ecologist who's wildlife ecologist, but I'm herpetologist. That's what I do. <laughs> we are second class citizens as herpetologists, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> or first, depending on yeah, your perspective. Yeah, yeah. Right? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> great. Well, so how, uh, tell us a little bit about how it all began. Uh, were you always into reptiles, amphibians, snakes, or uh, from when you were young, or is that something that kind of developed uh, as you moved along through your career? 
Yeah, you know, I, I was always interested in amphibians and reptiles. And like a lot of folks, it, it just, you know, I grew up in Connecticut, of all places, kind of in the suburbs um, near Milford. And um, I just was outdoors, you know, all the time. And I somehow I flipped a log and there were some redback salamanders and um, came across a, a garter snake that unfortunately one of our our cats, which we let outside, um, had killed and laid on our back porch like a gift. And so, so yeah, I just was absolutely fascinated with, with reptiles and amphibians at a really young age. And I had pretty tolerant parents, I guess, because, um, you know, the, there were four of us, but, but I was the only one into that. And so, so they, <laughs> they tolerated and, and tried to encourage it as best they could. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked out and I'm sure they're happy they did given they would be exactly. They're not living now, but they would be glad, glad to see that I'm, <laughs> I've made a, I'm making a living at it. So when did you take that interest and, and realize like, Oh, I could, I could make a career out of this. And it was it when you're in college or did you go to college kind of with that in mind? You know, it's interesting. Um, we moved from Connecticut to Florida, which was more sort of herp heaven really, although just different or more diversity. Um, so, so, but I, I kind of lost track of that interest. Um, I'm not sure why. So I, I ended up going to college and couldn't decide what to major in. But I, I took, I think, my first introductory class. I was at Eckerd College, a small, um, really small um, liberal arts college. And I took a course in macroinvertebrates right there on the coast, you know, and got super interested in biology. But um, it was a great program. But I, I think at that point, I didn't know what kind of jobs I could do. So um yeah, I, I, I just had kind of lost track of that in original interest as a child in, in reptiles and amphibians. Although I can remember my cousin and I, who she visited from Connecticut, and we were out in the yard catching anoles, green anoles. This was back before the Browns had completely taken over. And um, anyway, she snuck some home with her from Connecticut. Her parents were really upset with both of us. But, but anyway, so I, I was interested, but I just didn't think of it necessarily as, as a career Um somehow circle back to it. Mm -hmm. So was it in graduate school then that you decided to, to focus or? Yeah, I followed a, a, an odd path from getting a degree in biology, an undergrad degree in biology. I had a job selling shoes at a department store, um, you know, was making commission and stuff and, and kind of bungled into a, a job in Gainesville uh, that paid very little, but was as a ecological consultant. And that kind of threw me back out in the woods. I got to, you know, visit wetlands and monitor water levels and vegetation and do wetland delineations and things. And then I, we did a lot of work with um, threatened and endangered species and, and conflicts with development. And so I, I got to work with some of the rare species like um, um, Florida mice, gopher tortoises and so forth. And that got me right back into to field biology, I recognized, you know, hey, I can do this. I, I wasn't crazy about sort of the, you know, the realities of development and loss of habitats and wildlife, but it, I, I learned so much so fast. And that inspired me to go back and get a master's degree at UF in, in um, wildlife. Uh, okay, great. And what was your, what was your thesis work there? I did work on, on gopher tortoises, um, and I, um, 
I worked with um, a couple of, of people from the Florida Museum of Natural History, um, Dick Franz, who um, was a research associate there and had you know done some of the really early work on tortoises and their status. Um, so I worked with him and um, Dr. Ken Dodd, who um, was with the U.S. Geological Survey. You know, and it's interesting that I ended up at UF and Wildlife because it had has a great history of herpetology. Uh, the heyday, though, I think was more in the 60s and 70s before my time. And so there wasn't a strong uh, a herpetology emphasis there, but I found some folks that that kind of kept my interest. And Dick, of course, Dick Franz is interested in all natural history in many ways. And he, you know, just an amazing person to work with. And so, so then my thesis was on gopher tortoises on a UF property called the Ordway Preserve, which is east of Gainesville. And they've got tortoises and beautiful sandhill habitat and seasonal wetlands and all those other good, good things. Yeah, I remember I visited that property, I think just once, but um, kind of, mm. you know, working or, you know, with their management people looking at their prescribed fire um, regimes and, and so on. So you do this master's at, at University of Florida and you're now working in herpetology. So how do you get from that to, you know, this uh, Jones Center research scientist position? What happened in between there? Yeah. Um, so I, I finished my, my master's degree and um, started looking for jobs and was thinking of, you know, moving west and working with desert tortoises. But um, Christine Berry, who uh, was with um, USGS out that way, um, heard about a, a field position working with tortoises in Madagascar. And, and I said, well, yeah, desert tortoises are great, but yeah, let's go to Madagascar. I don't speak French. I don't know, you know, anything, but, but let's go. And, and Ken Dodds grabbed me and said, you know, if you go to Madagascar and you work on these tortoises, you should do a PhD. And so I was like, yeah, why not? So I, I stayed at UF. Um, Ken Dodd was my advisor for my PhD. And I, I did a project there on um, status and ecology of, of plowshare tortoises. Um, I guess it's now Astrochelys unifera, which is um, sadly um, functionally extinct in the wild um, because of um, trade in, in rare tortoises. But, but I was able to, you know, to do a PhD there, spent a couple years there, um, had a a phenomenal time and um, finished up my PhD and, and then took on a, a postdoc back at UF with Ken Dodd for a couple of years and, and was hoping to get on with USGS, but at that time they weren't really hiring um, permanent folks. And our, um, Ken handed me a job description to work here at a place called Itchaway. And I thought, what is that? You know, and <laughs> anyway, interviewed and um, got the job. And um, actually, you know, I couldn't imagine a, a better, it's a, not a very planned path to where I am, but um, I can't imagine a better place to be, honestly, um, than where I am mm -hmm. right now. So... Yeah, it's really yeah. Uh, an amazing place, and we'll, we'll get into that in some depth. But, you know, back to Madagascar, uh, I mean, plowshares are obviously kind of the most endangered there. But, I mean, the whole group of tortoises that, that live on that giant yeah. island, I mean, it's just, 
it, you know, it, it's not looking good for, for many of them. It's pretty sad. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if we've talked about this, Laura, but, um, I was one of many people that recently created a new nonprofit, um, just a little East of there out in the ocean. We call it the Indian ocean tortoise Alliance. And I sit on the board of that. It's right now it's primarily focused on, um, Aldabra tortoises and kind of getting them mm -hmm. reestablished throughout the Seychelles. And, um, yeah, it's just, I know it's quite a ways off Madagascar, but, but not too far. Uh, but it's a fascinating part of the world from a, from a turtle perspective, for sure. Um, great. Well, yeah, okay. yeah, it is. So, uh, and well, and actually, let me just ask you a couple questions about plowshares while we're on that. And I think we have time, but, uh, so, so plowshares live in, they live in a different region of Madagascar than most of the other tortoises, if I remember right. But what, What's kind of their mm -hmm. habitat like? And just just tell us, give us like plowshare one on one real quick. I'm just curious to hear a little more about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So most of the the living extant tortoise species in Madagascar, as you know, are in southern Madagascar in the um, spiny desert area. You've got, um, or in the deciduous dry forest. I guess you get the um, flat tailed tortoise. Can it, um, I'm drawing a blank on the name, but the, the flat-tailed tortoise. Um, and then I guess there's an introduced hinge-back tortoise up in, or they believe it's it's rec more recently introduced up um, in northeastern, um, northwestern Madagascar, excuse me. But plowshares are in northwestern Madagascar, but they're, um, all the, the populations are concentrated out around an area in the Majunga province on Bali Bay. And it's, um, it is coastal on the Mozambique um, channel. And the tortoises seem to be um, in sort of disturbed um, margins of deciduous dry forest. They're not a forest tortoise. They like savanna with bamboo thickets. Um, it's a pretty much a... A uh, hard place to get around if you're not a tortoise. Um, these guys, you know, sort of scoot around in the bamboo, and if you you're trying to keep up with them, you're kind of hands and knees trying trying not you know not to get get your hair pulled out by the bamboo. But but anyway, these guys are are in this sort of secondary forest, somewhat disturbed system, and um, they blend right in. You've seen termite mounds, I'm sure, and you know in Africa and so forth. You know they're they're highly domed shells they've got sort of a, a yellow coloration with some some um, striations in it that really you know they're shaped like a termite mound you put a little bamboo around it and they're just almost impossible to see they can get half a meter in length you know quite large but super hard super cryptic hard to see and rare of course so that's where they that's where they live kind of a, mm -hmm. a beautiful but um rough looking <laughs> <laughs> looking place. And so what's the big thing threatening them? Is it habitat loss? Is it, you know, like a, a lot of the Southern species, people are eating them. Uh, you know, what, what are the things that are kind of causing them to be one of the more endangered turtles in the world? I, I think, you know, I think they're very limited in their habitat type. There's, there's a, um, annual burning that the, um, people do there for, you know, keeping their their cattle creating you know um grazing areas for their cattle that's a huge part of the culture there it's the sokolov people um 
that live there. Um, and, you know, you know, generally in Madagascar, tortoises are not or were not eaten for food, um, but people passing through the island would collect tortoises and take, take them off to eat them or, or whatever. But so it's not been um, harvest for food, um, it, but a little bit loss of their habitat because the, the annual burning really degrades the bamboo scrub habitat where the tortoises occur. Um, but really, um, and I, oddly, I, I, somehow I feel like I played a role in all of this, but rare tortoises, rare animals are often really popular in the pet trade. Um, and plowshares, it's, it's sort of a, a phenomenon where because they're rare, they're rare because people s started collecting them, I think, for the trade or they came out in the trade. Um, and, and then that just sort of built on itself. And so I went out there and studied them and figured out where they were or not, didn't provide any specifics, but it sort of drew attention to where those um, tortoises were. And they had a captive breeding program ongoing while I was there and trying to, you know, um, breed animals to release into places where they'd been um, already, you know, over collected or collected. And um, that there was a huge robbery where someone broke into the breeding center and stole a large number of their breeding stock and offspring. So it's just it was contentious the whole way, and that only really got worse recently. So, yeah, um, so with these plowshares, it's it's been the trade I think that's that's put them yeah. over the edge. Yeah. Huh. Well, so thank you for indulging me uh, down a. Uh, Madagascar tortoise <laughs> <laughs> tangent, um, but back yeah. to back to snakes and uh, kind of where you are today. Uh, well, so you mentioned that there's kind of a distinction between the property and and the research facility. So let's let's just start with the property in a real ge general sense and and talk about Itchaway. So uh, you mentioned it was a, a quail plantation that was uh, owned by a former CEO of Coca-Cola. Um, so just kind of describe Itchaway to us and however, however you think's best, you know, size, what does the habitats generally look like? Those types of things. Yeah. So, um, the property itself, Itchaway is about just under 30,000 acres in size. And, um, what I think makes it remarkable, well, surprisingly, first off, um, when Robert Woodruff was purchasing the property back in the 20s, the property had been clear cut. And so Woodruff was thinking, you know, wanting a quail hunting plantation and early successional uh, pine forests are great quail habitat. And so that's what was purchased. Um, but, but, you know, it's hard to imagine now, but it had been clear cut, but it had never been farmed. Um, so it was this, um, it retained that Longleaf pine native ground cover of wiregrass is sort of a, the the dominant in the system, but a lot of, of diversity is in the ground cover. And and then our pines, um, there were enough trees there um, that it regenerated naturally. So over the past, you know, gosh, now it's been, you know, about a hundred years, the pines have regenerated. Um, naturally, and so we are forested with with longleaf pine, and we have this beautiful um, on a lot of the property, this beautiful um, wiregrass understory that's never been farmed. So it, it's, you know, the longleaf ecosystem um, is what what was it around ninety seven million acres initially, and and then less than five percent of that 
you know, remains and much of it's, you know, not been burned. Fire is a huge part of maintaining the system. But but here at Itchway, you know, it was it was um, a quail plantation, but but it's it's now a, a nice lonely forest. There are some wildlife food plots. But one key thing is that they burned it. Uh, frequently for quail, which um, only you know enhance the the natural system. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So you said it's almost thirty thousand acres. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and it has a couple, uh, but it's not just like a sea of longleaf kind of wire grass savanna type habitat. There's also um, a good number of isolated wetlands, if I remember right, and some pretty major riverways that, that go through. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have um, our eastern boundary is the Flint River, which is, you know, um, one of the major and least impounded, impounded rivers here in Georgia. That's on our eastern boundary. Our property is just bisected by a fourth order stream called Itchaway Nachaway Creek, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous, um, relatively unimpaired stream through about 15 miles of our property. And then, as you mentioned, within the longleaf, I like to describe the, the seasonal wetlands. These, these small wetland systems are embedded within the longleaf. They're sort of a, um, they harbor a lot of the biodiversity that's associated with longleaf systems through the amphibians, reptiles, and of course the, the plants. So yeah, yeah it's, it is diverse. And we have some disturbed sites. We have some pine plantations and like I said, wildlife food plots, mostly small food plot. So it's, it's actually pretty heterogeneous. Yeah. And just to be clear for the audience, it's, it's in a general sense is not open to the public, correct? I mean, there might be certain events or other things, um, where citizens or whoever might be invited out, but, but in general, it's not a place that people should be thinking, Oh, I can go there and look for things. Correct. Right, right. It is um, close to to public access. We're you know we're gated and this or that, which um, it actually allows us a lot of freedom to do our work without any kind of disruption and um, so forth. But yeah, it's it's we open up for um, we of course have researchers working with us here from all over. But in terms of the the public access, um, we have an open house event, which we've done virtually the past couple of years, and that is nowhere near the same. But but we open to the public and usually get about, oh, you know, four or 500 people that come through and kind of satisfy their curiosity that, about what we're doing here, you know, which is, is not, you know, secret weapons research or we're not releasing <laughs> pythons into, <laughs> into Chihuahua, not Chihuahua Creek or anything. So, but, but yeah, that's a, a very good point. We're not open to, to public. Sometimes people come on, um, drive through the old county road, crosses um, an old iron bridge on our property over the creek, which is quite a scenic view, mm. but, but no, we're, we're closed. Hey everybody, I just wanted to take a quick break and tell you guys that reptiles are declining around the world. As an example, turtles are the most threatened group of animals on the planet, with over 60% of all species classified as endangered. The Orient Society works every day to ensure that there's a future for these amazing animals. If you care about reptiles, amphibians, 
and their habitats, become a member of the Orian Society today by visiting www.orian.org. Gotcha. Okay. And so let's talk a little bit about the Jones Center. So, so the property, you know, I think it probably has multiple values or uses in the eyes of those who protected it, you know, from, you know, being a preserve to, to, you know, a, a site to restore the Longleaf ecosystem. And, um, but the Jones Center itself is one of the big, uh, you know, kind of reasons that that the property's there. It's thought as a of as like a research station, a place to learn about this longleaf ecosystem. Would that be a fair way to describe it, or to have that off? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that is um, what happened was when um, Robert Woodruff passed in the mid nineteen eighties. Um, you know the. Woodruff Foundation, which was sort of the the group of of people that um, handled his philanthropic work, sort of carried those forth after his death. They recognized that Itchaway, the property, was was amazing and had more value than just a quail hunting plantation because of the condition it was in. So they they did a little research, invited the Nature Conservancy out, folks from University of Georgia and some some other folks just to sort of kind of identify the the best use of the property in addition to um, you know, they wanted to retain the traditional quail hunting because we wouldn't have Itchaway or any of these other great longleaf representations of longleaf without quail hunting. So they wanted they they're pretty bound to that, but, but they wanted to, to find a, a bigger use for the place. And what they decided, you know, they didn't necessarily want UGA to, to take, take on some lead role in the center here. They just decided to build their own research center and, and staff it and fund it and staff it. And, and so we're independent of, of universities. And also we're remote, you know, it's not convenient to really any of the major universities. Florida State's the closest um, mm-hmm. university here, but but that's not Georgia, right? So, so anyway, they just created their own research center um, and hired a director to run the facility. But we also maintain what we call our conservation staff who handle the land management, the hunting aspects. There's, you know, they manage our deer, and our quail, um, there's a ho- whole lot of aspect, our prescribed burning program. And um, we really our mission here, though, for the center, it, it's we're not supposed to be standalone entities, conservation management and research. We're supposed to be talking to each other and our the managers seek our help on questions they have. And then we seek their guidance in terms of how, you know, where and how to do different kinds of research. So we're supposed to be sort of a center of, of research. Yeah, that sounds like um, a great model. And and so while the entire center is not affiliated with a university like G- UGA, as you said, um, individuals do have affiliations, but those might be in different places, you know, so for example, I think you're affiliated with UGA, maybe Auburn as well. I'm trying, to, or is it just UGA? Um, right, right. Um, I'm affiliated with pretty much all the major southeastern universities. Because what we do, <laughs> we have um, seven. <laughs> I'm, I'm an ADD kind of person. We, we have seven um, permanent 
scientists on staff, people, you know, at my level, including our director, Kira Klepsig, who's a forest entomologist. We have people, people with, you know, permanent staff here. And um, what we do is we, we have some sort of status at different universities to actually, um, we write grants together. You know, it just grows our our expertise, and we couldn't do it without them. I don't mean to sound sound like we we don't want to work with them. We just want to retain some control over the kinds of research going on at the center. So so yeah, we leverage these relationships, and so I, I work with folks at UGA, University of Florida, um, Auburn, University of Alabama. Um, I think the farthest afield I've gone was Florida um, Atlantic University. I had a student working on wading birds down there. So so yeah, and these folks have. Um, you know, visit here, we collaborate, we work on grants, and we also um, have a graduate student co-sponsorship program where there, there's a faculty advisor at a university, and then we serve as committee members or co-advisors to have graduate students work here. Gotcha. And I'm assuming, uh, I'm assuming that you and the other research staff there collaborate quite a bit as well on projects. Would that be fair? Yeah, we do. Um, we do. We're, um, oh my gosh, we, we kind of organize our research by themes. Like there's folks working in the woods, in the water and um, with wildlife. And those three kind of themes actually can overlap. But yes, we, we do work together and kind of capitalize on that. We just, our most recent um, hire is a, a more of a silviculturalist who works on carbon um, soil, soil carbon and so forth. And, you know, so I work with him. We have a landscape ecologist who works with all of us and, and Mike Connor, who's a more of a bird mammal predator guy. He and I collaborate as well. So yeah, yeah, we do work together. It's a, um, it's great. Um, great to be able to do that. And then we just expand out from there. So then does all of your snake you know, I guess all of your research in general, but does all of your research occur on the HOA property or do you actually, do you work beyond its boundaries as well? And kind of how would you break that down? You know, is it 90% of your work's on site and tens off or how, how does that all break out? Right. Um, it varies. Um, you know, most, I would say right now, um, probably 80% of my research is here on site. Um, that's the, the beauty of the property and being place-based is you can design long-term studies, but, but it's a way it becomes kind of small, you know, for certain kinds of questions. So, so yes, I, I've worked, um, with Georgia DNR on larger projects on the Flint river and, you know, um, alligator snapping turtles. I've done gopher tortoise work for them, um, work with the state of Florida and so forth, worked out into Alabama as well. So try and branch out typically with, um, you know, external grants and thing, things like that. But, but yeah, um, right now I'm, I'm largely place-based. So yeah, well, that's a good moment. place to be based. So <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's a good place. <laughs> um, we're going to get into snakes here because you guys have been doing a lot of interesting snake research um, on Itchaway. But uh, last thing I want to mention before that is obviously you're uh, a tortoise person. You know, you're just fascinated with tortoises and um, you live and have worked quite a bit on one of the coolest tortoises on the planet, the, the gopher tortoise. And uh, so, 
you know, I also think of you, so the, the tortoise is, has been a big conservation issue and in, in really for a long time now, but in recent years and uh, Fish and Wildlife Service has, has been looking at them and groups within the state of Georgia have been working towards them, but there's a particular monitoring protocol that, um, and I may have this wrong, but but I think you developed that monitoring protocol that that is, uh, you know, used really across at least South Georgia and maybe more broadly. Is that, is that accurate? You know, it is funny. It, it, it is, and it isn't, um, which you got to get humble um, on me. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, really. Um, really, it was basically <laughs> applying a really great method to go for tortoises, which should have been easy, but, but wasn't it. And I, oh my gosh, it's, it's been a journey. So as you know, we know a lot about gopher tortoises. It's one of those iconic species. It's they're really charismatic. They're in some ways they're really in- easy to work with because they don't move much, and you can find them because they leave a big burrow on the landscape and all this. So there's been so much research on them. Um, but over the years, one thing we just I think I think we kind of didn't didn't embrace was the need to. Um, know something about the population size. And we've, we know the reason the gopher tortoise is threatened, it's, it's not rocket science, but is, is loss of habitat like so many other species. But, but, you know, you can guesstimate by how much habitat is lost, how many tortoises or the, the magnitude of the loss of tortoise populations. But really when it gets down to turning things around for a species that's in trouble, it, it helps to know how many you have and where they are and how many you have. And um, we see burrows and we say, yeah, they're here, but but how many tortoises does it take to, to ha- make up a population, all this? And other folks have done that. But um, one of our our previous um, monitoring biologist, um, uh, Jonathan Stobrus, now with the Forest Service, came to me one day and said, let's let's figure out how many tortoises we have at HOA. You know, let's just see what, what our baseline is here at HOA. We know we've been managing for them. Let's start counting tortoises. And there's a great method. It's been around since the 80s called line transect distance sampling. Great method. Very straightforward. Easy peasy. But tortoise people just didn't want to stop and do that. They just wanted to go out and count burrows and say, this is how many tortoises we have, because we think about half of those burrows have a tortoise. Well, we know that's really not true. So anyway, we applied that method here, got an estimate. Jonathan kept sort of saying, Laura, you got to train these other tortoise biologists to do this this way. And he throws me in front of the bus. And now, now everybody, you know, has this standard method and it involves the extra steps it involves is being systematic looking for the burrows. That's great. We know how to do that. But you also have to check each burrow to see if it has a tortoise. You have to recognize that, you know, it's hard to find the small burrows, you know, all these other things. But it, it's it's re- really very simple. The method already existed. I just had to keep yapping about it until people started mm-hmm. doing this and now, and train some people on how we do it using some some nice, you know, we've got all these nice tools now, right? We've got submeter accuracy GPSs that can record your field data, you know, and we've got great burrow cameras, a camera you can search down in the burrow. You use those all the time for indigo snakes. So, so anyway, that's all I did. But, but yeah, so people have been counting tortoises across the range, um, which gave great data to the Fish and Wildlife Service when it came to 
um, making decisions about, you know, whether whether some conservation actions people have implemented maybe have stabilized things a little bit for tortoises or even resulted in more acquisition of habitat to protect tortoises. And you've been very involved in that whole bigger picture stuff too. So yeah, so yeah I think and it's, we it's, we use you know, the the. I won't say the techniques you developed, but the technique that you used and in a novel <laughs> way applied it to gopher tortoises. Um, yeah. that we, we use that to monitor tortoises ourselves now. So, and uh, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. So, and we, we did, we've done similar things. I won't be as humble as, as you, but <laughs> no, we did similar things with <laughs> taking an existing technique and applying it to something that has since become the standard. And that would be the use of eDNA, uh, environmental DNA. And we don't have time to get into that on this episode, although I should do an episode on that, but, um, using environmental DNA to survey for hellbenders, um, we had that idea, I don't know, 10 some odd years ago. Now I think every state in the range is, is using it. So it feels good. And you should feel good that, that you did that for such an important species because it's allowed really across the range for, for people to get some really good information that allows us to, to better manage them. So anyways, snakes. Let's talk about snakes. This is a snake podcast. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, that whole Gulf region and, and you know, Ichiwe is really an amazing uh, place from a, a snake perspective. And I guess I want to kind of dive into, you know, kind of some specific, uh, you know, maybe focal species studies on various species that you've been working on, but let's start a little bit broader and we can kind of couch this within, uh, you know, your long-term monitoring of, of snakes on HOA. So you've been monitoring snakes for a long time. Maybe kick this off by just kind of, how would you characterize kind of the snake communities, um, on and around HOA, you know, maybe what are some of the species that jump out at you and those types of things? Right. Um, we're really fortunate, I think, that we have um, populations of, of some of the species that are, you know, most closely associated with longleaf systems and, and maybe not doing so well in a lot of places. Um, we don't have them all, but um, what comes to mind immediately are Florida pine snakes, that's a species that, you know, it's a large snake and, and you know, presumably needs pretty large areas. Um, can, can occur in, in outside of longleaf for sure. Um, and I guess the, <laughs> the um, subspecies of that confound things a little bit, but the Florida pine snake is most associated with, with our native upland pine forest. But, but they like southeastern pocket gopher burrows. So we've got that little ecosystem engineer that digs these tunnel systems about a meter below the soil. And the pine snakes use those burrows for much of their time. So we have those um, um, southern hognose. That's a, we have Eastern hognose here as well, which in some places I think those are declining, but Southern hognose is a one, is a species that's, can be kind of hard to detect, hard to study, um, and so forth. They're living below ground or fossorial most of the time, but we, we regularly see Southern hognose in certain parts of the property. Um, I don't think what else, oh, Eastern king snakes, you know, through Georgia, 
Eastern kings are relatively common, but in parts of Florida, they've declined notably. So, so we have those as well. Eastern diamondbacks, that's, that's the one. And when I first, first came to Itchaway, again, as a, a tortoise person, I, I, I hadn't really, I appreciated venomous, venomous snakes, but hadn't ever focused my research interest on them. But I, as soon as I got here, I said, I got to learn to, to handle these snakes. I want people here to know that a, you know, th- they have a huge ecological value on on properties like this, and they're probably not doing well in general from persecution and, and loss of habitat and all these other things. So we we started catching and marking individual diamondbacks. So, but we don't have indigo snakes. We're just a little outside the range, and maybe not quite right for indigos. But yeah, darn it. So, so you have how many species do you have on the property of snake? Do you know off the top of your head, or even ballpark? Right, right. Um, in terms of the the um, upland species, I, I believe we have eighteen species, and then we have um, some of the aquatic species. So we're probably right around twenty four or twenty six species. That's great. So you have um, over six, 50% of the species we have here in the state of Georgia. We do. So, yeah. 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 Isn't that great? Yeah. It's a snaky amazing. place. <laughs> so yeah. uh, I mentioned the monitoring. Um, and I guess, why don't you kind of just talk about that a little bit, maybe kind of, you know, how, why you decided to do that in a general sense, how you're doing it, how long you've been doing it, and maybe anything that, that you think kind of jumped out at you know from the from the monitoring anything that's jumped out at you and and then we'll kind of move into some focal animal work we um we started monitoring snakes back in um 2003 and it was as part of a a long-term study where we put in place predator exclosures um, these are fenced areas where we basically wanted to exclude all of our mammalian predators for a study looking at sort of the response of some of our native prey species. And what we thought was if you take out the coyotes, raccoons, foxes, bobcats, you know, all these mammalian predators, like people do when they're managing for game species like quail, we expected there might be a response from some of the other predators. Like you take away some of the mammalian predators, maybe the the legless predators like snakes would increase in abundance or, uh, you know, ramp up in the absence of those predators. So that was the basis for that study, um, which is lots of, lots of complicated, interesting results there. But basically we, what we put in place, we had four exclosure plots that are about a hundred acres in size. And these are paired with four unfenced plots to look at a treatment effect. But at each of those individual plots, we put a couple of these permanent snake trap arrays, which is a box trap in the center, and then um, fences radiating out um, at you know four cardinal directions to direct um, snakes into that central box trap, which has a water source and so forth. And oh my gosh, I think that trapping design um, really revolutionized our ability to catch snakes um, versus you know opportunistically or really any other way we've we've ever had. I think so. So yeah, we've had those in place for 20 years now, and um, I should know the total number. I, I know it's it's probably upwards around more than 4,000 different captures of snakes oh, over wow. 20 years. And are you marking all of the snakes, words. or just certain species, or? We started out individually marking um, all snakes except 
Um, I think we we stopped at Black Racers because it's like there are so many mm. um, of them. <laughs> We've changed that since we decided let's mark everybody. So we individually mark them um, with with pit tags, you know, subcutaneous implantation of this passive tag that you can read with a scanner um, and Id- identify individuals. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Any really kind of cool recaptures, like something you caught caught it 15 years later? Any any notables like that that jump out to you, or anything you remember? Yeah, it's interesting you ask. What, what I'll say one of the coolest thing is that we recapture coach whips. Eastern coach whips are abundant here, and it's one of my absolute favorite snakes. But we recapture individuals. Um, not only very quite often, not only in the sna- same trap they were in, but on the same day each year. It's like <laughs> I don't know if it's a coach with migration <laughs> or what, but we catch individuals very very similar in in date year to year. But but we recently published a note. I thought it was worth we're digging in depth into all this these data that we have. But we published a note on sort of um, sort of estimates of survival based on um, time between captures of individual snakes. And so we have recaptures of um, an Eastern Diamondback, I believe, after um, nine years. And it's not telling us that that snake lived was nine years old. It's telling us that this individual was caught. Actually, I think that individual was caught as an adult based on its length and then recaptured some unknown age and then recaptured nine years later. So they live at least nine years here in the wild. And of course there are others that have much, much more detailed data on, on survival of those snakes, but um, pine snake, I believe we had a, a 13 year between recaptures for, for a Florida pine snake. Southern hognose are our longest time between. We capture so few, we get so few recaptures of marked individuals that, you know, very few captures at all and, and few marked individuals, but we had one that was two and a half years. So anyway, I just thought it was worth somebody saying, okay, here's some field data that tells us like with the maximum length of time between captures. Mm-hmm. Um, and have you over 20 years of, of trapping the same snake communities, have you noticed any trends or trajectory in, in any of the species or anything notable in that regard? Kind of long-term view? Right. Um, we, we haven't, we haven't seen, um, declines or, or anything that seems like an increase. Um, of course, you know, the rainfall patterns and, and things like that really, um, Affect, affect what we capture. One, one year we caught a rainbow snake. Um, we've caught multiples, but I remember a particular one year we had some flooding and we caught not only a rainbow snake, but we caught a war mouth in one of our traps. So it flooded up over the fences and into our mm-hmm. snake traps and we were catching fish. But <laughs> but um, some sort of general patterns. And, and I will say it's taken us this long looking at the data, the most recent data, now that we've marked everything, where we're getting enough recaptures where we can do analyses to estimate snake population size, snake abundance on Ichaway in this part of our property. So stay tuned for that. Um, that'll be yeah. nice to know. Yeah, many, that'd be exciting. Some of these species. Well, mm. let's, let's dive into uh, some of the focal animal work that you've been doing. And maybe let's start with the, start with the rattlesnakes because, you know, I'm a rattlesnake uh, fanatic. So um, I know you've done work with both diamondbacks and uh, timbers or canebrakes. Um, 
what have you guys been doing with with rattlesnakes down there in terms of research? Right. Right. Um, probably not enough because um, they're so fascinating. But we actually, like I mentioned, we would re- we would process s- rattlesnakes that we caught to try and educate people about about their value and just you know sort of dispel a sense of fear. But we had enough re- enough captures or sightings of um, cane breaks um, to do a, a study of of where where they occurred on the properties. I think people often associate that species with with um, hardwood forests and streams, riparian areas, and things like that. So we were able to tease out that yes, and and um, God, my memory's horrible. I, I can't remember if we compared that to the Diamondbacks. We might have, or if we were just looking at whether whether um, the canebrakes were closer to these habitats than expected by chance. And and in fact, they were. They were more associated with that. We also discovered some dens, um, sort of the maybe most inland. Um, den sites for, for um, cane breaks than, than I think most people recognize are using sort of limestone outcrops on the property, which was kind of cool, along oh. with copperheads and what the occasional kind of numbers, gray rat like snake. Big numbers or, you know, small gatherings or? Uh, it's pretty small. It's pretty small. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would say we, at any one den in a given year, we might see four or five. Who knows yeah. how many were there, right? I wanted to sort of fence them and figure that out, but I think it was a little too too off off target for for what I was doing at the time, but then then with Diamondbacks, um, I had a student um, early on who did some radio telemetry of of Diamondbacks on property, and um, we captured those snakes opportunistically on roads, and they were in a part of the property that's really dedicated to quail hunting. And so there are more food plots and so forth than elsewhere on the property, and those those snakes. You know they're they're using the hedgerows around fields, and that's probably because the prey base is off the charts, right? Cotton rats and things respond to management for quail, and in fact, our cotton rats are predators of of quail eggs. Believe it or not, they'll kind of get in there and roll them out of the nest and so on. But but anyway, so that student looked at home range size, sort of the areas that they used, and. And for that particular area, some habitat associations and, and things like that. Um, huh. And then more recently, a student of mine is very interested in diamondbacks. Um, radio tagged them using an external attachment of a transmitter. So we didn't have to do a surgery. He just temporarily attached small transmitters above um, above the tail and tracked them. He was interested in what sort of overwintering sites they used. As you know, there's a lot of anecdotal um, information that they like to use old weathered stumps um, mm-hmm. that yeah, Bruce means stay in the landscape. Talks about that from mm-hmm. down in your region, a little further mm-hmm. south than you, but close. Right, right, and they they are found in in stump holes. Now um, that student didn't actually find them <laughs> in stump holes here. Um, he more often found them in. Um, and went overwintering again. We don't know what they're doing in the summer necessarily, um, but they're they're using tree tip ups. They're using armadillo burrows. They're using gopher tortoise burrows. Um, but he he subsequently looked at at what was using stump holes with some um, trail cameras and found a large suite of animals using stumps. Gotcha, including snakes. I'm assuming. Yeah, hognose and um, racers and king snakes and so forth. You've probably heard of associations with king snakes as well. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Yeah. And for mm-hmm. those listeners that don't know what a stump hole is, would, how would you describe that? Right. So, so once a, a tree either, you know, you, a tree dies, eventually falls and the, the root system of that tree, or if it's cut, the stump gradually decays over time. And since there's frequent fire in the system, fire also starts to um, facilitate decomposition or opens up a bunch of below ground channels and root root channels and so forth that are great places for, for critters to seek shelter during fires um, when it's extremely cold or extremely hot. So these below ground, we call them refugia, are, are important, particularly to ectotherms, snakes and frogs and lizards. Thank you for listening to Snake Talk. If you like what you've heard on this podcast, you can help us by subscribing and leaving us a five-star rating. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, be sure to leave us a review. Yeah, and in a lot of places, those stumps get removed, you know, with commercial forestry. So that component, um, that potential overwintering habitat is, you know, gone in a lot of places. But... um, Great. I also Absolutely. remember, uh, might have been a s- smaller study, but I, I found it very interesting. Uh, I don't remember if it was a student or one of your employees that was studying like neonate or juvenile uh, cane breaks and really just found an incredibly high proportion of them were arboreal. Do I have that right? Am I remembering that correctly? Yeah. Good for you for remembering that, remembering that study. Yeah. This is some folks what we. I think they they left here to come work with y'all, but but yeah yeah. So um, we found a, a, a pregnant um, cane break under a log. Just somebody flipped a log, and there it was. And um, no, actually, I think she'd already given birth. That was another. That was Diamondback that gave birth in the lab. But but anyway, so they gathered all the the um, snakes together and brought them into the lab and we had some leftover tiny little small mammal transmitters and we glued them on the tail of the neonates and released them where they were found and then tracked them and we were really having a hard time locating these darn snakes you know they were there we could get a signal couldn't home in on them couldn't home in on them and Beth Schlim you know I think she was doing the telemetry and she she's crawling through some, you know, uh, thick oak vegetation. And she was like at eye level with a, a neonate timber rattlesnake. She took some phenomenal pictures. But yeah, yeah, that was published as a no. And so, yes, they were arboreal. Um, and we had some evidence that the snakes were, were um, climbing and then up and down the tree because I think she found, found a, um, I forget, well, just subsequent tracking events it was on the ground and back up again so they're they're mm-hmm. seeking refuge above the ground but yeah. a lot of them super were cool in snakes the trees, and trees yeah yeah cool. yeah it was a large a large number of them i think yeah. that there were maybe 12 or 13 of them and that were actually tracked and and it was it was a good number of them yeah i'd be curious to to see if timber rattlesnakes have similar behaviors up here in the mountains but maybe someday we'll figure it out um <laughs> okay, well, let's let's maybe pick uh, another, uh, maybe a colubrid. I know you've been 
had some folk alone work with pine snakes and king snakes. Um, is there one of those or another one that that you think would be interesting to to chat about? Right. Um, that's a great one. Um, the telemetry on pine snakes was interesting. Um, you know, it was it was. Um, but not a lot of work had been done on pine snakes outside of one place in Florida in terms of their movement patterns and so on. And we knew that, that they used pocket gopher mounds and so forth. Um, little anecdote there as when tracking them, um, as you're homing in on the snake, even when it's below ground, they, they sort of sense you coming, <laughs> they feel the vibrations oh, yeah. and, um, they would be hissing below ground and you can actually hear <sighs> that. Huh. Um, they're down three feet below ground in the pocket gopher burrow, and you can hear them hissing. Um, but um, they also eat quail eggs, but don't tell anybody I said that. Um, <laughs> um, what else? Well, you know, Did we they... looked at their what's called hat. Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say they're such big snakes, or uh, they can be. Mm -hmm. And uh, but I find them much less visible or maybe detectable than say like an indigo snake. Um, and so, I mean, did you learn anything about, and I just always kind of figured that they're spending so much time underground. I mean, did you learn anything about how much time they spend underground? Are they more nocturnal or are they more diurnal like an indigo? What did you learn about some of those things that make them an animal you do not see that much? Right. Um, so they do spend, um, I want to say it's it's like around 73% of the time below ground so that's one reason we don't we don't see them um they are but they are more diurnal um so when they're out and about it it is you know it is during the day um I else I, I think they're really cryptic I, I I know indigo snakes do some give us some gifts there by um you, you know they're well, you probably are a guru of indigo snakes, but I know they leave shed skins here or there. They, you know, um, they're somewhat predictable in parts of their range of when they're using tortoise burrows and so forth. And they, they seem mm -hmm. to so, show fidelity to individual burrows. I don't think we gleaned that for, for pine snakes necessarily. So I think they're just uh, really cryptic. Um, we do see them on roads, but we did a little assessment of, of um, frequency with which they cross roads. And at least here at Itchaway, they seem to avoid paved roads. We ah, have some, okay. some, you know, county highways that, you know, bisect the property and whether, where they spent their time would, they, they very rarely actually crossed a paved road, hmm. um, which was interesting. And Any we looked at what's called habitat selection to see if they, really preferred longleaf pine and wiregrass over say hammocks or, you know, hardwood areas or fields. And, and they do, they, they do use longleaf and wiregrass. That's what they're selecting for. That's where they choose to be. But here at Itchaway, they also were choosing to use a pine plantation, but it turns out one specific pine plantation, it's a, I guess it's a 75 year old slash pine stand that was pines in rows, but we didn't upgrade our, our habitat information. So basically we've thinned it, planted wire grass, pocket gophers have come back in there. It looks structurally like longleaf, but it's slash pine. So, so somehow uh -huh. they know. 
if you build yeah. it and it looks like what they need, they'll move. So, yeah. yeah I was just actually earlier today, I was interviewing, um, Bat, Bob Zappalorti, we were talking a lot about northern pine snakes. He said to say hello, by the way. And um, oh yeah, <laughs> and he was talking Been about uh, the pine snakes up there uh, digging their you know nesting burrows and digging side chambers off of bigger burrows. I mean, have you ever seen anything of, of that nature with Florida pine snakes or heard of it? You know, we don't know. I mean, we certainly see where they nose their way in and out of pocket gopher runs through sort of the, the mounds. They'll go down into a side tunnel and, and get in and out of there. And you'll see clearly like snake tracks coming and going. Or we, one of the telemetered snakes, we just have a picture of it squeezing into a, I don't think it was a pocket gopher run, but maybe a um, old field mouse burrow is another small burrowing mammal. Just see the tail sticking out. It was like it couldn't really fit in there. But but you know that's the big mystery to me. I, I seems to me maybe someone has found pine snake eggs associated with a gopher tortoise burrow. But I, I'm not aware of them actually making nesting chambers and this or that. And we we've actually had folks here doing a lot of work in pocket gopher with pocket gophers and excavating their tunnels and this and that. And I, they've not stumbled upon anything that, that seemed like it could have been pine snakes. Wouldn't you think that maybe they would choose to, to nest somewhere associated with a pocket gopher run? Maybe. You yeah. Know, you place would, to you start looking. And, and that was Bob's take as well. He didn't think that they dug down here anywhere near as much, near as much mm -hmm. but they don't obviously don't have pocket gophers up there. So, um, Great. Well, we could keep going. There's there's other species I know you've been working with, but uh, we are we've been talking for about an hour now, so uh, maybe we'll start bringing this one in for a landing. Um, but I like to, uh, with all of my guests, I like to uh, I like to just kind of imagine that that we're sitting around a campfire and. And after a day of working or fishing or kayaking or whatever, and and have them tell me their best snake story. So, uh, do you have a good one for us? I have one. We'll see how good it is. It's um, I, I laugh every time I tell it. Let's just put it that way. But when I was back when I was consulting, um, we were working on a, a federal prison project, and. Um, doing gopher tortoise work, but we knew there were indigo snakes there. And I was working with a consultant from New Jersey. I, I'm not sure why, why I was working with a fellow from New Jersey, but anyway, I, it was a super fun project. And we're, you know, we're looking at tortoise burrows and from a distance, you know, he's searching for burrows and he says, Oh, there's a really big snake here. It's a big black snake. And I couldn't see him, but all I, you know, I was like, it's an indigo, of course. And I was like, grab it. And I start running towards him. I'm like, grab it, grab it, grab it, grab it, grab it. And I get there and he's standing there watching this snake. Of course he didn't grab it. I, I was, you know, <laughs> I, I wished he had, but he didn't. So, so I was able to catch it and, you know, we, we just basically, you know, we're looking at it and I was, you know, it's just, it was a big, you know, more than six feet. It was just a beautiful snake. And, and, you know, it was, doing this usual indigo snake thing, like, just let me be on my way or whatever. And so anyway, I had my camera and I said, let me take your picture with this snake. And he still, I wasn't reading his body language whatsoever. <laughs> I was just having such a good time. So I, and I just handed him the snake calmly and said, I'll get your picture. And 
his his instinct to to hold that snake was to grab it tightly. Oh no! And I think I even think I said, "Take, I'll take your picture. Don't worry, it won't bite you." Which was the kiss of death. So he grabs <laughs> this thing a little tightly, too tightly for the snake's comfort level. In a slow motion, that snake turned its head slowly, and you know how rarely this happens, right? It turns around, slowly opens its mouth, and I'm going, "Oh no!" And I'm trying to tell him to just <laughs> let go or hand me back the snake, and it just bit him in the hand and hung on for a minute and I thought he was going to faint and anyway and I of course belatedly realized what you thinking anyway so that's my that's, story yeah, that's Don't. funny well at least it didn't bite him in the face I've seen that happen to people before yeah. so. oh have you okay yeah 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 okay. right on the bridge of the nose I did feel badly for the snake and for the guy yeah, yeah. great well that's a great story I uh, enjoyed it and we will uh We'll put some links to the Jones Center in the show notes so people can um, check out the center and and see you on there and and learn more about what you guys do. But uh, but yeah, I just wanted to thank you. This has been it's been fun and great and good catching up with you. And look forward to talking to you again soon. And then I'm just going to thank the audience and tell everybody to remember: snakes are animals too. And it's a privilege to see one in the wild.